different contexts. There was a woman who went into a bar uh, called Roxy, and it was on Granville Street. She went in there earlier in the day. She had a club because they had just come from um, golfing, and she was told she wasn't allowed to have her club in there. It could be perceived as a weapon. She left in a huff. When she came back, she came back in her moccasins and uh, went into the club and they said that she wasn't allowed in here with moccasins and why don't you wow. go why don't you go hunt moose if that's what you think you know and they kicked her out of there mm. and uh, her moccasins fell off as she was being thrown out and then they threw her moccasins out after her so there was a total <laughs> Welcome to the Arts Report for Wednesday, January 23rd. Today we're going to hear about Push, and we're going to hear about Is It Happening? Today on the Arts Report, we hear from various push shows, reviews, and interviews. But first up, we're going to talk a little bit about Is It Happening? fundraiser for UBC Visual Arts and the Bachelor of Fine Arts program. And we're going to be speaking to Evan French. Evan, are you there? Hi. There you are. I love How's being able to work the phone. It makes me feel like a real host. Now, in, yeah. the, in the background, we're listening to Gunshot Wounds, Nine Dashes, EP, Hard Times, Honorable Man, which you can find on gunshotwounds.bandcamp.com. And they're one of the musical guests at the Is It Happening fundraiser. And when is it happening, Evan? It's happening on Saturday um, at 7 p.m. Um, yeah, you're going to... It's at CBC Studio 700. Uh, which is in downtown in the CBC Studios building. So it's kind of in the middle of everything, if you're interested in stopping by. Now, tell us a little bit about uh, where the fundraising is going to go and and a little bit maybe about the the program, the visual arts program, because you are in the visual arts program, correct? Yeah, Yeah. so I'm enrolled in the BFA uh, visual arts program, Bachelor of Fine Arts, and um, it's going to help us our year-end exhibition and um, basically to to have the money to put ourselves out there as artists in, uh, in the world um, so it's in order we, we need to throw this event in order to have the money to put out a catalog of our work at the end of the year so so you yeah. uh, so so this kind of reminds me and I think should remind everyone of the kind of yeah. entrepreneurialism that it takes to yeah. actually be an artist so you yeah. in order to actually kind of finish your education you have to raise money yeah exactly so it's we kind of have to make it happen ourselves in this program actually it's kind of it's on us to make it a good event and if this event kind of falls flat then our budget falls flat so so it's kind of like the way the art world works so i mean 
you either make it yourself or you don't kind of so yeah especially especially yeah. out here on the west coast that's for sure um yeah. now can you tell us a little bit about some of the people that will be showing and some of the things that people will see um, if they uh, come to this event so the uh gunshot wounds um we'll start with the bands maybe um gunshot wounds is a good friend of mine charlie and a bunch of fellow vancouver musicians um, and I just want to like thank them for volunteering their time to be part of our fundraiser, um, as well as Stefana Fertilla, who's also a good friend of everybody in the programs, kind of. Uh, she's studying uh, art history up here at UBC, I believe. And um, I saw her at uh, Wrong Wave. At, at, at sorry. Uh, I think she was at the Wrong Wave Festival, I believe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She, and so she's she, an excellent performer. Yeah, she plays a noise sometimes pop other times you never really know but um yeah and uh, there's also going to be an art auction featuring works by not only the professors at ubc so marina roy uh gareth james uh barry jones uh, just trying to think of a couple names here are all donating works to the exhibit as well so those are going to be up for silent auction so you'll be seeing a lot of art uh, as well as uh, art by uh, the bfas themselves so they've all given in works for the uh, for the auction as well um there'll be there'll be a silent auction as well so excellent well yeah. uh, so it is it happening january 26th yeah january 26th at the cbc 700 yeah which is uh uh, Just down by the library. Hamilton Street, yeah. Vancouver. So, excellent. So, if you yeah. want to support uh, local students, the next generation of visual artists in the city, not just to support them, you know, in their day-to-day artistic lives but even just to finish their education and uh, to be able to showcase what they've learned over all this time all that hard work please come on down and you'll get to listen to a live a little uh gunshot wounds and stefana who we are listening to right now from stefana fratilla grows up Uh, awesome thanks Um, and just as a side note if you are interested in advanced tickets you can get them on uh, the fourth floor lesser building in uh dina's office i I'm blanking on the room number right now, but um, you can just go pick them up from her anytime between nine and four. Um, and you can also uh, uh, check out the event on Facebook as well, yeah. or um, yeah. you can uh, check out the ahva.ubc.ca for more information. Awesome. Thanks Thank you so, so much, Evan. Have a great afternoon. I will. You too. back on the arts report.
Oh yeah, we're back. And it's time to talk a little bit more about PUSH. The PUSH Festival is of course happening right now all around Vancouver. You can check out all the shows at the pushfestival.ca at pushfestival.ca know that and it's happening from January 15th to February 3rd uh, Vancouver's International Performing Arts Festival. Now we have a couple of reviews coming up then later we're going to talk to Jay Dodge of Photog and Emily Molnar of Encore Ballet BC but first off Lauren Lauren, so nice to have you in the studio again. Thanks, Megan. Now, Lauren, uh, the other day you wrote a uh, lovely Q&A uh, about The God That Comes, which is the Hoxley Workman Cabaret show That's musical at Club at Push. Push. And uh, you spoke with your friend uh, who wrote the prologue. And yes. then you got to see everything in action. Uh, so can you uh, tell us what that show was like for you, what you enjoyed? Uh, you used the word gush when you came into the studio <laughs> earlier, so please gush for us. I do plan on gushing. I had the very good fortune of seeing The God That Comes, Hoxley Workman show at Club Push on f- this past Friday, and it was a wonderful show. Hoxley is a world-class performer. Um, when you walk into this kind of old-school cabaret setting, you're greeted with what looks like a regular gig setup. There were two keyboards, a drum set, um, a couple of different guitars, and several other instruments strewn about the, st- the stage. And then at the back of the stage, you had three dummy- dummies, which each had a headdress, a different kind of headdress on them. And those dummies came to represent the characters in the story as the night went on. Um, but it really, the whole thing hinged on the magnetism of Hoxley Workman himself and his incredible ability to tell stories. And so the play was essentially, um, it was a rock opera, or it was an album that told a story. And that's what we got to experience. And the audience was wrapped with attention the entire time. The music was what you've come to expect from Hoxley, um, with a couple of ironic old favorites like Go Tell It on the Mountain strewn about throughout the show. And uh, so we're just—I just put on a little, a little Hoxley Workman in the background. We danced to yesterday from a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, now Hoxley Workman is a rock star. This is, I believe, his first musical theater outing. Yes. Uh, so did that translate well to like the theater aspect of things? How did he do? Absolutely. He well, Hannah Moscovich, who is engaged to Christian Berry, the director of the show, um, and both of them are alum alumni of. NTS, National Theatre School, Um, and she said, it doesn't seem fair that Hoxley kind of transitioned from music and he's just taking the theatre world world by storm, but that's exactly what he's done, and I think at the end of the day, performing is performing, and he's just such a seamless and magnetic performer that he's wonderful when it comes to storytelling and theatre of any medium, and paired with Christian Berry, the direction was really wonderful in this show. It just built to such a climactic moment. Um, it was it, it was entirely based on the premise of the Greek myth, but also it really had a lot of ties to the Greek play, the Bacchae. So the prologue in the beginning told the whole story. So it wasn't about the surprises of the story. Rather, it was about how the artists dealt with telling this story and the humor that they put into it and the build they put into it with the story arc and with the music. And so can, the execution was perfect. Can you give us maybe um, a 
like a, a standout moment that you thought really encapsulated the the event as a whole? So, well, I think there were two. Okay. There was probably I'll allow two. There <laughs> there was um there was a very comic moment that involved the king in the story who has to dress in women's clothes in order to spy on the god that has overtaken his kingdom and who he's very concerned with. So, um that part of the story, Hoxley sort of transforming into this king who actually likes to dress in women's clothes as he who climbs up the mountain. Who doesn't exactly? That was extremely com- comic, beautifully executed, and full of surprises, um, not to be anticipated and not to be missed. And then the climax itself, um, it's okay for me to tell you because you would learn in the prologue anyways if you do see it, the king ends up being murdered by his mother on the mountain. In her madness, she thinks that he is a baby cub and hunts him. So that was very, very impressive, the way it was dealt with on the stage. And I won't tell you more than that, but the music and the lighting together, it was pretty unreal. Great. Well, the God That Comes uh, for Club Push is over now. I believe it was on from the yeah, the 16th to the 18th, um, but it. I bet you anything they wind up trying to tour that. So keep an eye out uh, for Huxley Workman in The God That Comes. And Lauren, thank you for your review. Thanks a lot, Megan. And that was We Dance to Yesterday from Milk, Hoxley Workman. Now, I also have a review for you. We, uh, I saw the other day, January 20th, uh, so two showings on January 20th uh, of Cinema Musical. And uh, we spoke last week to Francois Houle, who uh, was the developer of one of the five sections of Cinema Musica that uh, was playing at the SFU Woodward's Theatre. And we are listening now to Lines, Section 1. Francis Houle improvising with computer music composer Keith Hamill and video artist Alexandre Dulik. And you can hear this on FrancoisHoul.ca. Now, uh, the premise of Cinema Musica is that there are five pieces uh, developed by, developed by, uh, sorry, Turning Point Ensemble. And Turning Point Ensemble, they uh, are a chamber choir of 17 core musicians who are, you know, they are doing classical works, but also uh, pushing the boundaries. Kind of a theme here at the festival. So, uh there was uh, it was eclectic uh, an eclectic mix of groundbreaking artists as they say in the program um, was not fully realized for me so there were two pieces that I uh, that I enjoyed the most um, 
first off being uh, Chroma Concerto, which was the uh, brainchild of, I believe, Horace Ivins. Um, there was the music, and then there was also a visual art section and as this uh, staccato piano played um, you got to learn uh, about you got to see the visuals that were interacting with the music and this is kind of the theme of cinema musica is the interaction of cinema and music so you have a concerto both on the piano but also visually and it was merely color and lines if you had to imagine it, you imagine color chromosome pieces breaking apart, going crazy, and bursting with color all over the screen, both anticipating and reacting to the music uh, played by uh, piano. And that was my favorite. It got uh, one woman gave it a standing ovation. She very much loved it. And I think in general, it was the most uh, humorous and the most interactive of all the pieces. You could really see the music and the cinema interact together. So I think that was the most successful of of the evening. Uh, the second most successful was uh, Francois, Francois' piece himself that we talked about last week, uh, Suspense, which was the... Uh, turning point ensemble uh both live and video projected so they were playing with themselves and then you also had a superimposed uh projection of trampolinists and these are dancers who were you got the arc of them suspended in midair and the music had a film noir dark quality given a giving these trampolinists a bit of an ominous quality um, it was very enjoyable, but at the same time, um, I actually would have probably preferred to see the suspense of non-dancers, thinking about it after. Uh, dancers are obviously beautiful to watch, but they do have a control and a beauty that is very, you can anticipate where they're going to go and how they're going to react and what they're going to look like. Um, but, you know, if it had been your average trampolinist, or maybe people with a bit more of a wacky sense of humor, the suspense might have been not only greater, but also it would have been uh, it would have been more it would have been more visceral, I believe. So that was the uh, the piece that I also found uh, successful. And then the other three pieces uh, you had uh, Arnold Schoenberg's accompaniment to the film Pursuit, Fear, Catastrophe, Ruskin, B.C. and uh, the Schoenberg piece was originally made for a silent film, an imaginary silent film. No film existed for this music. And so it was paired with uh, Fear, Pursuit, Fear, Catastrophe, Ruskin, B.C. by Stan Douglas. Now, uh, I have not uh, seen any of Stan Douglas's work before, so I don't have a framework. But I would say that the musical, uh, emotional musical connection was much more accessible and much more successful than the visual space. Uh, it was a film about a murder, perhaps, film noir style, and silent film style, in uh, Ruskin, B.C. at a power dam. And there's, a, a, there's certain gender and racial undertones. And 
but it's done in a style that is the old time style but also involves um, modern settings technologies and so it's a bit surreal and i found it a bit distracting i think overall in cinema musica the musica far far outweighed the cinema uh so that was cinema musica was at the Faye and milton wan experimental theater at sfu woodwards on january 20th and it was put together by sfu woodwards and the turning point ensemble if you want to check them out turningpointensemble.ca and uh, this particular night was featuring francois Hull, who are you listening to lines section one Another reason the Cinema Musica probably suffered is because I have ju- I just seen a documentary uh, on Conlon Nankero, who is a genius uh, composer from the 20th century, recently passed away, uh, who did amazing progressive and modern things for the player piano. And after just seeing that, uh, I think that some of the progressive music of the wildly talented Turning Point Ensemble, um, which performed some absolutely beautiful music uh suffered a bit uh, in comparison so uh such is the life of the arts reporter um you are never unbiased compared to what you have just seen and you are listening to the arts report on citr 101.9 we've just done a few reviews of the push festival and listened to a few songs and now uh, i would like to take this opportunity to uh give away some tickets now i'm going to be checking this out tomorrow so i will post a review once it is uh once it is all said and done now opening tomorrow is rhinoceros by ionesco translated by martin crimp and directed by chelsea haberlin who is a uh, masters of the theater at UBC and this is a surrealist play wherein totalitarianism turns people into rhinoceroses rhinoceri I guess I should have looked that up beforehand uh when you call in to win tickets please tell me whether it's rhinoceros or rhinoceri uh, it's 822-2487 and it'll be at the Chan Center at UBC And uh, Eugene Ionesco's absurdist piece follows the tragic everyman called Beringer, who must navigate the chaos in his small French village. Uh, Townsfolk are transformed into stampeding pachyderms. Uh, As bipeds become an ever smaller minority, what will it take for him to to stand up to the increased menace? Uh, So it's a satirical comedy. Um, Think Animal Farm and... Uh, think 1984 um, but with a international twist 
and uh, a French twist, if you will. And uh, it he was uh, one of the most important playwrights of the French 20th century. And uh, MFA directing student Chelsea Haberlin will uh, direct. She is also the co-artistic director and general manager of It's a Zoo Productions, who uh, we have had on the show uh, before. It's a Zoo. Uh, and it is a very interesting company. So I'm expecting interesting things. Uh, if you're interested in the themes of will and responsibility, as well as the political absurdity, uh, then you can call in at 604-822-2487 to get a couple of tickets. Or you can tweet at CITR underscore arts report. Um, and if please be following arts report and UBC theater at UBC theater uh, so that you can get all the facts of what's coming up. We are going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll hear from more push. J Dodge Botog. Hi everybody, this is Fred Penner and you are listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. CITR 101.9 FM Vancouver. Yep, yep, yep. Radio, 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 radio. On Friday, January 25th, come to Seymour Mountain for the Great Northern Concrete Toboggan Race, an annual event that challenges the creativity, innovation, and technical skills of engineering students from all across Canada. Participating teams must design and construct a toboggan with a metal frame and a running surface made completely out of concrete. For more information, go to gnctr2012.com. Strength, dignity, respect, beauty, self-worth, safety, confidence, choice, hope. The Beauty Night Society is a registered charity dedicated to helping marginalized women introduce trust, hope, and self-esteem into their lives. This is the first day of Through its popular makeover program, the Beauty Night Society has touched the lives of thousands and reintroduced a healthy touch to the lives of vulnerable women throughout British Columbia, creating real life makeovers. Please visit www.beautynight.org for information on programs and on how to help. Beauty night because, because dignity, dignity is beautiful. beautiful. I think I was blind before I met you. And we are back on CITR one oh one point nine. Now, uh, last night I saw Photog. 
and this is written and performed by Jay Dodge, and it is directed by uh, Boko Del Lupo, who is a local theater company who are committed to performing uh, the interesting and the contemporary and often the technological. And it's led by Jay Dodge and Sherry Jae Yoon. Uh, and it, they bring together many artists and uh, producers and organizations from all around the city in order to create uh, really interesting theater pieces. This particular piece uh, was at the SFU Woodward's theater and you may remember Boco Del Lupo from previous uh, La Maria from last year's push festival which uh, happened all throughout Gastown and storefronts and on the streets and required an epic amount of multiple organizations but this time it's just Jay on a stage with a bunch of computer effects and a few harnesses to fly him through the air now before i review the piece i just wanted to let you know uh, a little bit more about the show now uh photog is actually a combination of four different uh photographers of conflict conflict photogs uh who gave uh, who Sherry and Jay interviewed uh, a few years ago uh, on camera and then took their texts verbatim and created Thomas Smith. It's an imaginary look at his uncompromising life. And Thomas Smith is a photog uh, just back from conflict who is being kicked out of his apartment. He's being evicted. He's actually returned from the job overseas uh, to pack up. And... He tells the audience about his various experiences and the psychological effects of not only f- uh, photographing these conflicts, but ultimately being a part of them. So uh, this is actually running from January 22nd to Jan- January 26th at Studio T at SFU Woodwards. And uh, if you go tonight, there is a pre-show screening of the film Restipro at 6 p.m. And uh, for free, and this is actually uh, Tim Hetherington's documentary now. He was a contributor to this work, and he was killed in April of 2011 while covering conflict in Libya. And so the performance is dedicated to him, and last night was their first performance. Jay, who is Thomas Smith? It's a, it's a fictional name, a made-up name, uh, but it's a composite of four people, which were uh, four real-life conflict photographers, um, Tim Hetherington, Michael Camber, Farnash, and Ashley Gilbertson, uh, whom we interviewed on camera in 2008 in New York. And these are four uh, fairly prominent conflict photographers or war photographers. And uh, what we did in creating the play and the character was we, we cribbed from those uh, interviews verbatim and and created a sort of amalgamation of stories and character traits uh, that became Thomas Smith. There was a, a real politics about the show, uh, both in the content and in the expression of the content and in terms of the actual the actual voice of thomas smith and the things that he says i noticed a real one a real politics in terms of comparing life in your average like north american middle class household to 
the events that are happening in these conflict areas. And now, is that something that you found from all your all your interviews, this kind of con both interconnection and disconnection between these two kind of states that these photographers are going back and forth between? Yeah, I think if there was, I mean, each of the, each of the people that we interviewed ha were very different, obviously, and they had their own personal reasons uh, or curiosities or, you know, ambitions around why they got involved in conflict photography. But, yeah, I think that the one of the th real through lines, you know, and... Um, I'm not sure if they would call it politics, although I think that's how perhaps maybe, you know, we might take it here. Small P you know? politics. Yeah, small P politics. Or, But for them, it's really, uh, and I think, you know, you know, for me playing the character anyway, it's really just about, uh, it, it is, it's about trying to reconcile these two irreconcilable things, you know, because you look here and, you know, somebody, say, you know, in Vancouver is worried about uh, what what school their kid is going to get into, you know, and that's a legitimate concern, you know, but then you go to some of these more difficult places in the world and people are worried about whether their kids are going to survive the day and you put those two things beside each other and while they're both, you know, they're obviously within context, they both have importance, you know, uh, uh, but, the, but it's hard when you put them side by side to reconcile how they can coexist and how, you know, it definitely, definitely one concern is you know more intense than another especially when you place it beside each other but does that diminish the 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 need to want to get your kid into a good school you know i you know i don't know and i, and I think that a lot of the photographers that we talk to i mean that's the struggle right is is you keep putting these two worlds beside each other and it, it's kind of impossible to reconcile their coexistence and there's no quick or easy answer the other really defining part of photog as a show and of Boca del Lupo, your company, is the technological and the contemporary theater elements that you bring to the right. show. Um, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the use of the physical space. Can you tell me which of these techniques you developed specifically for Photog and why? Or if there are techniques you've used before, why you think that they really work for this story that you're telling of Thomas Smith, quote-unquote? Well, yeah, we've been, we've been playing with, you know... Uh, performance, uh, you know, using interactive technology in different ways for quite a few years now. Um, I mean, this time we focused on, you know, photography, and it seemed to make sense to use some of the sort of chroma key and luma key techniques to, which is, you know, insert the character or the actor into some of the photography, because that was, you know, really essentially what the story was about. And I mean, we've used a lot of rigging and things before, but, you know, there's a whole, there's probably, you know, a hundred different things that we played with. Uh, in making the piece and you know only about 20 of them made it in and we tried to pick things that we felt actually spoke to what the piece was about and and also I mean I think the purpose of you know why do a play why include this the technology um, and make a piece that's hopefully sort of you know visually engaging you know um, is because we set out you know to do this piece because we felt that we were turning away from some of the more difficult subject matter we were seeing in the news or or wherever, you know, on the daily basis. And a big purpose of the piece for us was both for ourselves and hopefully for the audience to sort of um, open ourselves up to taking a moment to look at some of these, some of this more difficult subject matter. And so, um, you know, that's, I think that's a part of the reason why we use the, the technology in the piece, because even though you're looking uh you're dealing with difficult subject matter hopefully you're also there's a little bit of, of wonderment and magic and 
you know, the theatrical stuff that's happening on the stage that sort of um, makes it makes people, you know, sort of open up to the idea of being able to look at some images that perhaps they would normally not. Now, the, the, the setting of coming back to this room and it being in the process of eviction and, and yeah. speak, obviously now, now you've drawn from interviews. So uh, is that a, a scenario that one or more of these photogs face that you're recreating or is it something that you thought was just, a, just an appropriate home for, for the conversations? No, it was actually one of, the, one of the photographers had that exact scenario happen to them. You know, they had a long time warehouse apartment in Dumbo in Brooklyn and, um, well, exactly what played out in the play. And then uh, in terms of, you know, being evicted to make way for condominiums and um, and spending a lot of time after that, you know, essentially being homeless, you know, and it being his apartment being really this place that he would come home to and be this sort of safe haven, you know, because you, obviously you're dealing with a lot of trauma and everybody has different ways of, of coping with that, obviously. And. And I think uh, one of the interesting things with, with the conflict photographers or team that we discovered is, you know, there really is no support for them when they come back. You know, there's if you go and you're a soldier, say, in, in a conflict zone, you know, you come back and maybe the support isn't great. People probably have criticisms of it. I don't know much about it myself, but but when as a conflict photographer, you, you come back and, you know, if you're having trouble and there's some... It's, there's a few a section of the play that speaks about this. You know, if you're in trouble, you really just have to keep things quiet, or people don't send you out again, and then you're out of work. You know, and this, so, you know, that dynamic, you know, really puts it on each photographer to find a way to deal with it themselves. You know, and one of the photographers had bought herself a property up in Haida Gwaii, and that was where she always went afterwards. You know, to find sort of calm and peace and heal a little bit from all the trauma she had witnessed. You know, and another one, you know, had this warehouse apartment that was sort of this place where people would come and it was this, you know, sort of this hub and home and and um, and exactly what played out in the play. He was uh, he was evicted, you know, and only recently, I think, found a um, sort of a new sense of, of home many, many years later. So, yeah, that was that's uh, true to life. And that was Jay Dodge of Boco Del Lupo, who was performing and wrote uh, the imaginary look at the uncompromising life of Thomas Smith, Botog. Now, uh, I very much enjoyed many aspects of the piece. I am a harsh, I am a harsh mistress after that gushing about Hawksley Workman today, but um, I enjoyed uh several things and i also uh found several things not necessarily unpleasant but distracting now the piece itself was quite moving and i think that if you are interested in a emotional entry point into international conflict and the relationship that news media and that these individuals have the the kind of tenuous relationship then i would very much recommend uh checking this out including restapro which is how which is a free showing this very evening at 6 p.m now i am a little disappointed with a couple of things um first of all uh i found uh the technology as he mentions uh, a way to definitely represent visually and interactively the experience of these photogs um 
often distracting. So, for example, the chroma key technology that he was speaking of um, did a couple of really amazing things. I think the most poignant moment was near the end. Uh, what they would do is they would show a visualization on the back wall and they are videotaping, uh, videotaping, <laughs> uh, they're, they're video, uh, they're video projecting what he is doing on the stage and then in using kind of green screen t- style technology to, um, interact with that image. So he's showing a flashlight, he's moving a flashlight along the floor and where the flashlight, they have replaced the floor with the image of children, children beneath the floor of the set. And it was probably one of the most poignant images I've seen in theater in a very long time because after all you've learned about the conflicts that these people have gone to to bring back images, to bring back some sense of truth of what's happening over there, underneath all of our floors, underneath all of our, uh, you know, kind of western privilege are the bodies of these children it was it was absolutely a moving image and something that really the technology showcased in a way that just speaking about it would not have been effective however in other places i found that uh, a straight monologue actually might have been more effective and they were showing images of marriages and happy homes and then jay's image would be um, both inserted and obs- and then obscured. Um, and I think that because that technology is still developing, it was a little bit distracting. Um, another, another thing was that they would sometimes bring in other actors, um, not into the space physically, but digitally through uh, various means. Now, sometimes it worked. He had a Skype conversation with his quote-unquote editor that seemed live. I asked him uh, outside the interview, is this live? Was this live? Um, and it was so well done. Whereas another time when they are moving, um, they were looking outside the door through the peephole at people who were trying to evict Thomas Smith and it made this rushing noise and you're looking outside the door and because it's pre-recorded, the interaction was cartoonish at best. Um, same thing with things like the sound. I did not like the sound design, um, It was over the top when he opens a beer bottle, the doorbell, the whoosh. These are all very cartoonish and it was a very plunky soundtrack. Um, And uh, the movement sometimes was very overly precise. But then as the play came along, Jay very much relaxed. And you really got a sense of this Thomas Smith character, this amalgamation of these photographers. I think ultimately the humanity of the piece is in the photos and after the piece you can actually see the photos that these photographers that were featured um, through the interviews were you could see the photos that they took and ultimately this is the way they communicate and it may even communicate their personalities best Um, they are as thomas smith tells us looking to bring back some sense of truth of what's happening outside our little world. And as I mentioned in the interview, the politics of it were very interesting. They looked at the interconnectedness and the disconnectedness between the 
maybe peaceful North American, Western European world. And they do point out, even state several times, that that world is in many ways the cause of the conflicts that we are uh, photographing. But ultimately what is presented is kind of this, you have this white, middle-class, peaceful, and to the piece's credit, they also point out consumptive, ignorant, and often conflict-causing Western world uh, where people are getting married and worried about where their kids are going to school and having coffees and, and generally um, being disconnected from the harsh realities compared with this world of color, conflict, war, and um, ultimately, you know, death. But of course, within our very own worlds, there's conflict and there's pain um, within our, you know, this North America and Western Europe. And then within the these areas of conflict, there are marriages and children and education and a middle class in, in outside, outside the areas of conflict. But this story is about those areas and about these people of privilege who are able to go to these areas and in some way contribute, hopefully, to the truth of the situation and exposing the truth to people who have the resources to help. And I think ultimately that is a very uplifting, if not sobering, message. So congratulations to Boca del Lupa for tackling such complex and dark and yet oftentimes very, very funny material. And I think that uh, as the piece continues to tour, which it has been doing in the past, um, that and, and perhaps as the technology develops, this will become a really amazing piece of theater history. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, you can check this out uh, through the 26th, including a free Restopro screening tonight. Coming up for Boca, Boca del Lupo, who you can find on bocadelupo.com. Uh, are a series of micro performances from themselves, from local theater groups, and from international theater groups. Um, and those will be starting at the end of February. There'll be one per month. And then they will be uh, for audiences of 10 to 30 people. So extremely immersive and uh, something that uh, Boco del Lupo is well suited to. We're going to take another break, and when we return, we will have our final interview of the evening. Emily Molnar, Assistant Director of Ballet BC. Uh, also, uh, the arts report will be uh, at a few places. We will be at Rhinoceros tomorrow night. We will be at uh, the Unit Pit Gallery uh, on Friday night. Um, and that is the PJS Collective Before I'm Done from January 25th to March 9th. Uh, and that is opening at 8 p.m. on Friday. The PJS Collective is John Walkis Green, Skylar Stock, and Paul Lang. And it's actually curated by Cease Weiss, who uh, we tried to have on the show the other day. She's a W2 Media artist and volunteer as well as a curator in the city. And then we will also be at the Ballet BC Encore, which we will talk to Emily about in a few minutes. And uh, as well as a few other events and snag tonight at the Cobalt, uh, the weekly art show where uh, visual artists showcase their work done live. And if you're looking for something for your wall, something you can bring home rather than uh, experience ephemerally, then that is a place to go to get some art and buy raffle. Very democratic. Okay, when we return, Emily Molnar.
Ever thought about volunteering with Big Sisters? Maybe now is the time. Big Sisters of BC Lower Mainland provides girls aged 7 to 17 with a champion, a mentor who's there to simply be their friend and cheer them on. Become a study buddy tutor and spend one hour a week helping your little sister learn to love school. Or become a big sister and spend three fun hours a week just hanging out with your little sister. If you're age 19 or older, please visit bigsisters.bc.ca to find out more. Maybe now is the time. Hi folks, this is DJ Abe. Tune into my show, Toss Got Some Donuts, every Monday from 6.30 a.m. to 8 a.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. So let's get grooving, dancing, and smiling in the morning. I just wanted to give a quick heads up that we have given away those rhinoceros tickets to Kimber at a tree and a bat on Twitter and uh, Kimberly, we will look forward to seeing you over the span of rhinoceros and we will get that all set up ASAP. It pays to listen to the Ice Report, everyone. So we are going to be speaking with Emily Molnar and this is a, uh, a bit of an extended interview, but uh, Emily actually really has to be one of the best speakers on dance that we've had on the show. Uh, dance is a very difficult thing to speak about. As she notes at the end of the piece, uh, dance is ephemeral, it is visceral, and it is very personal. And so Encore, which is three pieces um, that have been very successful and are some of their more cutting-edge pieces from BC Ballet, um, will be performing uh, at the Push Festival uh starting uh january 24th 25th and 26th and uh you can check out more information at www.balletbc.com slash performances uh, emily molnar was a dancer in ballet bc for 10 years and has been artistic director f- this is her fourth season um please uh let emily tell you a little bit about the three pieces um in uh, we have herman schmerman uh, we have First Flash and Petite Ceremonie, which is an original for BC Ballet. Uh, and she also tells us a little bit of what, what Ballet BC is to the world of both contemporary dance, which is a word she doesn't like to use, and traditional ballet. The Evening of Encore is a collection of three different works that we have done in the past, um, three years with Ballet BC, and they were pieces, all of which were very, very successful with our audiences. And one thing that I do when I'm putting a mixed bill together, so a triple bill of pieces, is to find diversity, to show the range, the type of work that Ballet BC is known for. As a contemporary ballet company, we really pride ourselves in the fact that we have, we can go from a very neoclassical place all the way to a more dance theater um, kind of positioning in dance. So we have a a range of virtuosity within the work that we're capable of doing. And so this evening of Encore is a very good example of that. The first work um, is a work by the name of Herman Schmerman, which is by one of our leading contemporary choreographers today, William Forsythe. And the work was made for New York City Ballet in 1992, and it really is a signature 
piece of his beginning style, so his um, beginning work, and it, it is a, it's a fantastic piece of choreography that challenges the dancers in a very virtuosic way. It's more of a solo-based piece. It's um, a work for seven dancers, and it's and we often kind of joke in the studio that there's so much layered dancing, you almost feel like you've done a full evening of dance, and it's only been 10 or 15 minutes. It's just such virtuosic, such such a demanding and challenging piece, both physically for where the technique is being pushed to the limit. So you have to have an incredibly strong classical base that gets then pushed into the dynamics of contemporary. So it gets pushed pushed off of its axis. The music is by a, a fantastic Dutch composer by the name of Tom Willems, and it's very percussive, very dynamic. So the, the dancers also have to um, it's wonderfully sophisticated challenge of interpreting this very percussive and electronic music. So that's the first work. The second work is a work um, by the name of First Flash, and it was originally created for Netherlands Dance Theatre in 2000, 2003. And Netherlands Dance Theatre is one of our leading contemporary dance companies in the world today, um, based in Holland. And this work was made by Jorma Elo, who is a, a Finnish choreographer. Uh, who also danced with Netherlands Dance Theatre in Kohlberg, and his works are all over the world in major companies. And it's a fantastic work to the music of Jean Sibelius. There's a lot of, there's a couple things in the piece that I think are worth noting. One is that Sibelius created, he composed this piece of music he, as, 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 a, as a musician who wanted to be a great violinist, but he was not as great a violinist as he was a composer. So he actually created with this violin concerto of the most virtuosic piece for violin that he could possibly imagine. And so it's this glorious um, rendition of, of just this virtuosity within a violin. And the stage set for the work is by a lighting designer, Jordan Toyman, who is Dutch. And it's a fantastic architecture. It, a lot of it stems from a light box that sits up downstage, and it creates these incredible shapes and architecture and landscapes within the stage. And then there's this beautifully crafted contemporary work that sits just between the use of the lights and the music, and Yorma's done just a fantastic job. It again is for six dancers, and it just it shows, it has elegance, it has um, virtuosity, it has dynamic, it's exciting, it's just a beautifully woven piece, and it's had a lot of success with us, but also a huge amount of success around the world in a variety of companies. They, that have, I think it was just recently um, set in Moscow, and uh, it's been all over the world. So. That's our second work. And then the third work is Petite Ceremonie, which was actually created for Ballet BC, which is also something that's very important to the company. We do a lot of new work. So not only do we bring in works that have been created on other companies, but we pride ourselves in the fact that we do a number of, of new creations. And I think to date, we have added in the past three and a half years, 28 new works to our to our repertoire. Wow. So, yeah, so Petite Ceremonie was created by Mehdi Valerski. And Mehdi is actually a, a wonderful dancer at Netherlands Dance Theatre, but he's also a rising star in the European, well, global dance scene. And he's French, um, originally. By, um, and he came in 2000, we premiered the work in 2011. And what's fantastic is with this work is it's a full company piece, so if we have 15 dancers on stage. But Mehdi started with two distinct questions that he asked the dancers. And this is just such a wonderful example of how creativity becomes, um, you know, comes alive. He asked the dancers, what are you most grateful for? And two, what would it feel like to live in a box? And from those two questions, he created a three-week process that developed in these beautiful, beautiful different kind of, it's like a, a collage of 
these ideas, everything from a very poetic a discussion of relationships between a man and a woman to um, just thriving um, kind of, there's a wonderful scene where one of the dancers uh, speaks for a little bit and uh, is talking about the difference between a man and a woman and, and is juggling. And it's just, it's, there's humor, there's humanity, there's the poetry of, of the relationship of a man and a woman or, you know, a relationship between two human beings. And there's also a very, um, I think, a beautiful content, too, on the strength of the female and the strength of the man and, and, and aging. He also is discussing that as well in the work. But it is a, it's a wonderful example of, of, of a creative process that we have successfully gone through and was, it was just was received incredibly well. So all three of these works we knew were a success. I'm very excited to be able to put them on a program because also this program will be taken on tour to the National Arts Center in a couple of weeks and also around Eastern Canada. So it's, um, it's an important program for our Vancouver audiences and also for us to be able to be ambassadors for work that's being created and performed in Vancouver to take, be taken abroad. Now, these pieces are not just ones that have been popular, but also seem to really highlight the aesthetic and um, contemporary push that you give ballet. Now, ballet is often considered a very traditional form of dance and uh you know tradition a traditional set of kind of aesthetic values so what i was interested in for those who haven't maybe experienced ballet bc i know i haven't if you could tell me a few thoughts on what makes ballet bc on the edge not just of ballet but dance and maybe speak not just the kind of the techniques you employ but also kind of the value system the aesthetic or the philosophical value system that differentiates um or builds on traditional ballet that people might kind of be more able to picture right okay so there's um it's a fantastic question there's lots of layers there so i'll try and be very very brief first thing about what we do is Every dancer that steps into the company has to have had classical training, but we do not work off of a codified language of ballet. So a good example would be the difference between a classical musician and a jazz musician. We are more the jazz musician. Okay. So when we create a work, we are not necessarily aware of the form. A lot of choreographers today, and this is where ballet has evolved, and not just ballet, but many different forms of dance, because now a lot of different forms are melted together. So not unlike what's happening with globalization. You know, you have someone who has a background in hip-hop and classical Chinese dance, and they're also ballet and modern trained dancer, and they're a choreographer now, and they're using all these different styles and putting them into what becomes their choreographic language. So for us, we because we work with so many different voices, so people from all over the world, both Canadian, both from the States, and, and, and also in Europe, are coming to us. So they all come from different histories, but... They work with a dancer at Ballet BC that has classical training, but is able to push that training outside of, outside of its um, codified language. So they have that as a foundation. But what they do in the process is that they create a movement. They create movement invention in the sense that they don't necessarily know what the step is going to look like. They take an idea. So, for instance, when you know you might say, "What would it feel like to fall?" and then and then be searching for something and then run at the greatest speed as if you've just lost something and you're about to be late for the for, 
for a show. And you, what is that going to look like in movement? I mean, it's a very complicated task. But you take an idea, like, I'm going to work with the idea of an impossible space. So I start to build a movement language around that. But you're dealing with a dancer who has this incredible technique inside. So their ability to be fluent and to come up with ideas is, is, is quite articulated. There's a, a range. So what's happened with ballet, um, to just to make this a little simpler, is yes, there is classical ballet still exists in its traditional form because there are some people who have never seen it, and it's also there because it's there are still people who are evolving it, and it's it's a beautiful art form. But ballet, as um, as something that is purely codified, um, in the sense that a lot of people know that you're seeing traditional use of costume, traditional use of mime and gesture, and the theatrical elements of of, of a story being um, evolved. Those things have very much evolved for years, century, well, for, for quite a few years, primarily first in Europe and then into North America, so that now today what we're doing in a way is what ballet has become. It's not um, necessarily that. That's why I'm very careful about the use of the term contemporary. It really is. The, the language of ballet has become more of a technique that people use in order to then create ideas through dance. And so we use point shoes. Um, that's one thing that, you know, is, is a reference point for most people. But the way we use a point shoe is a woman is not always linear. She will really work off for access. She'll find more three-dimensional use of the space. These are all things that still stay inside of the ballet world. They're not, it doesn't necessarily make them classical, but it is what ballet has become. So I think just a lot of people may not know the difference between seeing, you know, traditional Swan Lake with a lot of the sets and the costumes and and uh, the character artists inside, that, that the story can play out that way. But also today, if you go see a ballet company in North America or in Europe doing a another version of a Swan Lake, you may not, you will probably not, you will not see those elements, but you'll see them in a more generational point, from a more generational point of view. So the costumes will be more generational. The use of light will be more three-dimensional. There'll be more, the use of the body and space will be more three-dimensional. And the storyline will not be necessarily be given, dictated through narrative of a, of a gesture. It will be in the actual movement itself. So, and also the, the theatrical development. I mean, there's so much work with dramaturgy now um, in the evolution of theater, and that's that's totally met itself in dance. So you have a lot of choreographers today who are able to work with a range of different disciplines. So when they're approaching a full-length story ballet, like what we're doing with Giselle, you're able to see animation on stage in a ballet piece be developed, and you see that integration of those two languages coming together to tell a story, whereas traditionally that would have been through someone showing it in mime. So I've really, sorry, I've gone really over the map. Oh, it's a very loaded okay. question that you've, you've asked, so it's, it's very hard to say it in a very short period of time. But no, I um, understand, but I, I do think that gives a sense because you're not rejecting or, or undermining ballet. It's another generation. It's another, it's, you're building yeah. and expanding and Absolutely. playing Absolutely. with, with and those mores and those tropes. My biggest thing that I would invite any audience member who has never gone to a show before or who has never seen dance or has not seen Ballet BC is, first of all, everything that you're feeling is great, is right. It's your opinion. Have your opinions about what you see. Be okay to not get it until maybe afterwards because the first response when you're watching dance is, it's 
it's a visceral response. There's an experience that goes on there between the, the performer and the audience that is only um, about those two those two people or that group of people with that with that performer. And after that show is over, it will it will disappear. It's not documented. So there's something very intimate that is that is that is felt at that moment. And often people then just experience the piece and they'll feel that that range of it might be emotional it might be really they're 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 caught thinking about something afterwards like oh that reminded me of this but to just know that what they're feeling is great they don't have to understand it in some perfect way it's completely subjective to their viewer um and to what they what they're receiving and to be okay with that and to be to be actually really curious about that and to kind of go oh what is that and then feel that freedom and that confidence to just go in there and purely be open to the experience that's all for the arts report today we had a lauren on reviewing the god that comes and she also wrote a q a that you can find on our facebook or on citr.ca we gave away some tickets to rhinoceros and thank you so much to jay dodge and emily molnar for speaking to us about their push shows we'll have a review online citr.ca on saturday and next week on the show of Encore. Please stay tuned to UBC Arts On Air, where we will be learning about ranting with Dina Al-Kasim of the Department of English. Have a great night.